Chapter Twelve of the Short Line War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Short Line War by Merwin Webster. Chapter Twelve. Catherine. As Catherine drove home alone on Sunday morning, she was troubled. In aiding Harvey to catch the train for Manchester, she had acted upon the veriest impulse and Catherine liked to imagine herself a very cool and self-possessed young woman. Slowly it dawned upon her that by helping Harvey she had set her hand against her own father. In an impersonal way she had realized this, but Harvey's presence had filled her thoughts, and she had not allowed herself time to consider. And now that the cooler afterthoughts had come, she was almost as indignant with herself for showing such open interest in Harvey as for hurting her father's cause. Then she grew startled to realize that even in her thoughts she was placing this man before her father. Harvey was not a fool. He would see that she had been disloyal, and he would cease to respect her. She wondered if she was disloyal. On reaching home she hurried to her room, and sat down by the open window, looking out over the lawn that sloped down to the road. Harvey would think her weak, and would feel that he could sway her from her strongest duty. The day was bright. Far in the distance she could see a bend of the river. There was no sound, no life. The rolling country stretched away in idle waves. The checkered farms lay quiet in the sun, over all was the calm of a country Sunday. Her eyes wandered, and she closed them, resting her fingers on the lids. Life was serious to Catherine. Since her early teens she had lived without a mother, and the result of her forced independence was a pronounced and early womanhood. She had learned her lessons from experience, and had learned them with double force. She had never been in love, and, save for a very few youthful flutterings, had never given the idea a concrete form. And now that she should manifest such weakness before Harvey partly alarmed her. She suspected that he loved her, but would not permit herself to return it. She knew too little about him, and besides, her first duty was with her father. She had yielded to impulse, but it was not too late to reconsider. She had aided the enemy by a positive act. She would do as much for her father. With firm eyes she rose and went downstairs, fully decided to investigate the matter until she could discover a means of throwing her energy against Weeks and Harvey. During the next two days her determination grew. Mr. Porter was in Chicago and Manchester, and was not expected home immediately. So Catherine had plenty of time for thinking— she drove a great deal, went around the links every morning, and tried to read. It did not occur to her that her effort was not so much to side with her duty as to crowd down the thoughts of Harvey that would steal into her mind. She permitted herself no leeway in the matter, but kept resolutely to her decision. Tuesday afternoon she drove until quite late, and returning found her father and McNally awaiting dinner. Although she was quicker than usual in her efforts to entertain their guest, the meal was hurried and uncomfortable. 
when in repose mcnally's face was clouded and the occasional spells of interest into which he somewhat studiously aroused himself could not conceal his general inattention her father too was preoccupied and was so abrupt in his conversation as to leave small trace of the easy lightness of manner that Catherine had always known. After dinner, Catherine excused herself and stepped out through the long window that opened on the veranda. Evidently a crisis had come, and she wished that an opportunity would arise through which she might join their discussion. Just outside of the library window she sat down on a steamer chair and gazed up at the dark masses of the trees, the thinning tops of which were at once darkened and relieved by the last red of the western sky. "'Yes, Porter, they kicked me out. My men and I made a stiff fight for it, but they outnumbered us.' At the sound of McNally's voice, Catherine started guiltily. It had not occurred to her that the matter would be discussed downstairs. Usually her father's private conversations were held in his den on the second floor. She wondered whether she ought to make herself known." Then she heard McNally again, answering a low-spoken question from her father. He was a good man, or perhaps you would call him a bad one. He was just getting down to work on the vault door when West and his gang of Pinkertons broke in on him and nailed him. Another question from Porter. No, Porter, they are on to us now. You see, the books are gone, and there's no use in trying to get hold of that end of the road. "'but we can seize it from this end "'and get everything except their building.' "'With cheeks burning and with conscience troubling, "'Catherine rose and stood before the window. "'I didn't intend to put myself in your way,' she said, "'laughing nervously, but I couldn't help hearing. "'Looking in through the dim light, "'Catherine thought she saw McNally start. "'After a brief but embarrassing pause, "'Porter spoke.' using the tone Catherine associated with the stern but kindly rebukes of her childhood. "'Did you hear all we said, Catherine?' "'Most of it, I'm afraid.' "'You understand, dear, that this is very confidential business?' "'Yes, Dad.' With an impulsive start, Catherine seated herself on the low sill of the window and clasped her hands in her lap. "'I wish you would let me talk it over with you,' "'You know I am interested in your affairs, Dad, and,' hesitatingly, "'maybe I can help you.' For a space all three were silent. Catherine was leaning back in a pose that brought out all her unconscious beauty. The waning light fell full upon her, and the sunset seemed to be faintly reflected in her face. Her hair was coiled above her forehead in easy disorder. McNally, sitting back in the shadow, looked fixedly at her, and as he looked, it seemed to him that her beauty spiced the atmosphere. He found himself drawing in his breath keenly and almost audibly, and gripping the arms of the easy chair. With a sudden half-amused feeling of boyishness, he relaxed his grip and leaned back comfortably. It was some time since the introspective Mr. McNally had found it necessary to reprove himself for such a slip of demeanor. "'I couldn't help seeing what was going on,' continued Catherine, "'and you told me the other day that I had helped you some.' She turned appealingly toward her father, who sat with head lowered, scowling at the carpet. McNally broke the pause. "'There is very little we can tell you, Miss Catherine, 
A business matter of this importance is too complicated for anyone who has not grown up with the problems. It would involve the history of two railroads for years back. "'Why is it,' asked Catherine earnestly, "'that a man never credits a woman with common sense? I am not blind. I know that the M&T is a feeder to C&SC, that it supplies us with coal, and that we could earn and save money by making it a part of our system.' Mr. Weeks is fighting us for some reason, and we are planning to force the question. Isn't that so? Where did you learn this, Catherine? asked her father. From no one particular source. You have told me a great deal yourself, Dad. The question is, Miss Catherine, McNally said, what good could you possibly do? Without implying any doubt of your ability, you see, our course is already mapped out for us by circumstances. In fact, there is only one way open that leads to a logical outcome. If we were in a position where we needed tactful advice, you could undoubtedly be of help. But just now, what we want is a force of strong, aggressive men. Mr. McNally is right, dear, said Porter. Everything is decided, and all we can do is to tend to business. This week's is following rather a dishonorable course, and we are prepared to meet him. That is all. Catherine leaned forward and twisted the curtain string around her finger. Is he really dishonest? she asked. Well, dear, that is a hard question. No man has a right to condemn another without careful deliberation. But it happens that many business dealings savor a little of underhand methods, and it looks to us as though Mr. Weeks were not over-particular. "'What has he done?' "'Well, you see, dear,' Catherine broke in with unusual warmth. "'Oh, I know what you are going to say. Some more complications that I couldn't understand. Why won't you tell me?' Porter arose. "'We'll talk this over at some other time, Catherine. I have an appointment with Judge Black for this evening. But I will be back before long,' he added to McNally. He came in on the 825. I'll leave you with Catherine. When he had gone, there was a silence. Catherine felt that her father's absence should alter the tone of the conversation, but she waited for McNally to take the initiative. What a glorious night, he said at length, rising and coming to the window. Did you ever see such a lingering afterglow? Suppose we sit outside. Catherine rose and made room for McNally to step through the open window. Together they walked across the veranda, McNally seating himself on the railing, Catherine leaning against one of the stone columns. "'How long have you been ambitious to be a businesswoman, Miss Catherine?' "'I hardly wish that. Only I like to share Father's interests.' "'Do you know I like that? I like to see a woman show an independent interest in important affairs.' Nowadays, not only young girls, but women of position, seem to care for nothing but the frivolous. I don't know but what our pioneer ancestors got more out of life when the women and her husband worked side by side. Will you tell me about the M&T business, Mr. McNally? I hardly feel that I can, Miss Catherine. To my mind, that rests with your father. Probably it does, but father still thinks me a child— he thinks I cannot grasp the situation. Even if I felt at liberty to discuss it, 
I don't know what I could tell you beyond a mere recital of dry detail. Personally, I should like to do so, Miss Catherine. I honestly admire your independence, and I believe that you might even be able to suggest some helpful ideas. But business does not concern itself with the personal equation. Catherine looked thoughtfully at McNally's shadowed face. She was a little surprised with herself that she should so persist. But it did not occur to her to stop. Deep behind her desire to be honest with her father was a desire to prove that Harvey was, after all, in the right. She did not recognize this. She did not even know it. But Harvey's personality had taken on hers a vital grip that was as yet too strong, too firm, too close at hand to be realized. As for McNally, his intention to evade was too evident to be overlooked. He was dodging at every turn, and it was becoming clear to her that he was concealing facts which it would not do to disclose. And this suggested that her father was doing the same. The bit of conversation she had overheard came back to her, and as she thought it over it sounded odder than when she had first heard it. Why should her father wish to seize the road? If it belonged to Mr. Weeks, and if he did not care to sell, what right had her father, or anyone else, to take it by force? She had been looking out over the lawn, but now she turned and fixed her eyes intently on McNally's plump, smooth-shaven face. He was looking toward her, but seemed not to see her. Instead, there was the shadow of a smile in his eyes, which suggested air-castles. "'Mr. McNally,' she said abruptly, "'if we want the M&T road, why don't we buy it and pay for it?' McNally started. During the long silence, he had been feasting on Catherine's beauty. He was not a young man, but as he gazed at the earnest young face before him, and at the masses of shining hair, half in shadow, half in light, he felt a sudden loneliness, a sudden realization of what such a woman could be to him, what an influence she might have upon his life, and losing for the moment the self-poise that was his proudest accomplishment, Mr. McNally stammered. Oh, he said, we couldn't, it, it wouldn't do. From the change in every line of Catherine's pose, he knew that he had said enough. She had turned half away from him and was standing rigid, looking out into the night. Glancing at her dimly outlined profile, McNally could see that her lips were pressed closely together. He pulled himself together and stood up. "'Why not go in and have some music?' he asked. "'This conversation is too serious for such an evening.' Catherine bowed and led the way into the house. As they passed through the library toward the piano, she paused to turn the electric light key. With the flood of light, Catherine's ease returned, and she laughed lightly as she pointed to a gaudily decorated sheet of music on the piano. "'Shocking, isn't it?' she said. "'That's the kind of music we play down here in the country. "'We need your influence to keep us from degenerating musically. "'Play me something good.' "'McNally glanced at her with a laugh. "'Coon songs, eh?' he replied. "'Well, some of them aren't so bad.' "'He sat down at the instrument and let his hands slip over the keys. "'Catherine sank upon the broad couch in the corner.' She was apparently her old self, friendly and interested in Mr. McNally and his music. 
but there was nevertheless a distinct change. McNally felt the difference, and tried to throw it off, but the force of the situation grew upon him. Slowly he realized that in spite of her pretensions, she was not really in sympathy either with him or with her father. He struck into a list rhapsody with all the fervor he could muster. McNally was a good musician. He possessed the power, lacking in many better pianists, of using music as a medium to connect his own and his listeners' moods. But tonight he fell short, and he knew it. He stole a glance at Catherine. She looked exactly as usual. But still, there was a difference that baffled him. He threw all his art into the music. He labored to color it with sincerity and strength. But all the while he knew that the ground was lost. What he did not know was that Catherine was passing through a crisis, and that her thoughts were miles away from him in his rhapsody. He ended with unusual brilliancy, and she smiled with pleasure and thanked him simply. But still he felt the change. Then Porter came in, and after a brief general conversation, Catherine withdrew. She did not go at once to her room. Instead, she slipped out on the little second-floor balcony and sat down to be alone and to think. She had made an honest effort to throw her interest with her father and with what she believed to be her duty, and now that the evening was gone, she had nothing to show for it. For a very few moments she wondered at it all, and at the fate which seemed to draw her toward Harvey. Then, as the thought of him again took concrete form, and as the last two days with him came back to her mind, her whole heart went out to him, and she was startled, frightened at the strength of his hold upon her. For a moment she gave herself up to dreams, dreams of a better, sweeter existence than any she had dared to imagine. Then came the thought of her father, and Catherine broke down. Downstairs, McNally and Porter sat for a long time, with only a desultory conversation. Then McNally said, "'Porter, I envy you a daughter like that.' "'She is a good girl,' Porter replied. End of chapter 12